Good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hills online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill Church. Uh, We are excited to have you with us. We're going to be continuing our study of the Gospel of Matthew this week. Now, would you do me a couple favors here? First of all, uh, if you're watching on our Facebook page, would you just hit the like button, maybe hit the share button. Uh, If you are listening on our uh, audio feeds like Spotify or the Apple Podcasts, uh, you just have to search Faith on Hill to find all of our uh, podcast feeds. Um, Just uh, let us know. You can uh, say hi. You can follow us on Instagram uh, at Faith on Hill. You can uh, shoot us an email. My email is Adam at Faith on Hill. Our church email is office at Faith on Hill. You can find out about our small groups. We meet on Sunday mornings, but then we uh, meet in small groups throughout the week. And you can find out about those at small groups at faithonhill.com. Uh, <clears throat> Video, of course, is streaming on our website, faithonhill.com, and then the video is always available on our Facebook page. Now, coming up on November 20th, that's the Sunday before Thanksgiving, we are having Sidesgiving. So what that is, is after church in our fellowship hall, we are going to have Sidesgiving. We did this before COVID. It was a lot of fun, and we're excited to bring it back. Uh, the church will provide uh, beverages and all the stuff to make turkey sandwiches. And then people bring their favorite side dish. Now, there's kind of two ways you can approach it. I'm sure there's others, but there's two ways that people tend to approach this. Either they bring us their holiday classic, like this is the way that we have always made sweet potatoes since the beginning of time, and it is the way we will always make sweet potatoes. Or Somebody says, hey, there's this new like apricot and sausage uh, stuffing that we've been thinking of making, but I don't want to do the experimenting on my family, so I'm going to have the church be our guinea pigs, and we'll see if we like it or not, uh, or we'll just go with the same old, same old that we've always done at Thanksgiving. Either one's fine. So if you uh, come on out, uh, bring a side dish, we will have the stuff for sandwiches and the stuff to drink. You're like, hey, I can't bring a side dish. We'd still love to see you. Uh, this is also a great opportunity if you just have been kind of checking things out. Uh, you've been watching online. You're not sure uh, if you want to. You could don't even have to come to service that morning, but you could show up after church and, uh, and you could hang out with us and, and just get to know us. So that's coming up on November 20th. You can find out more information about that and anything else by checking out our social media. And again, that's at Faith on Hill on Instagram and Facebook. If you have a Bible, we'll be in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 24. Now you might have been with us last time and remembered that all of this started Because Jesus and his disciples were leaving the temple and his disciples were like, hey, the temple is so great. And Jesus was like, it's all going to be destroyed. And they're like, whoa, wait, when is this going to happen? And then Jesus, uh, a little while later, they get together in private and Jesus says, actually, okay, the bunch of stuff's going to happen. And you're going to think these are like the signs of the end of the age, but they're actually just normal human events. There's going to be wars and rumors of war. That happens. There's going to be natural disasters and famines, and there's going to be strife and conflict and all that stuff that happens because this world is broken. But he actually doesn't answer their question. So this continues on. This is the exact same moment as what we studied last week. It's just 
broken up over a couple of weeks of Bible study together. Verse 36, chapter 24, he says, but about the day or the hour, that's the day or the hour that he will come again, that he will come to establish his rule and his reign as the true king. He says, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. So Jesus says, there's actually stuff I don't know about. Now, is it because Jesus in his humanity restricted himself? That's probably what it is. It also could be that Jesus in his divinity did not know. It's very, very common and popular to talk about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, as being in mutual submission and there is no hierarchy, no division between the three parts of God. But that's not exactly what the Bible teaches. That the Son does the will of the Father. The Spirit always points to Jesus. The Father glorifies the Son and sends the Spirit. So I don't know which is which. I'm not going to claim to speak of things that are beyond my comprehension. Only to say that there is a teaching that goes around, and quite honestly, it's usually used for other purposes than to talk about the Trinity. But Jesus says, I don't actually know. Only the Father knows when that day and hour will be. I grew up, I spoke about this last week, I grew up in a church that made a really big deal about the end of the world, about the end times, about the rapture, about the second coming of Jesus. I grew up in a group of churches that made a big deal about the same. I went to a Bible college that was all about that kind of stuff. And they would say that this is the case, that only the Father knows, but then they'd spend a lot of time trying to guess when it would happen. Foolishness, waste of time. Only the Father knows. Now, Jesus said last week, learn the lesson of the fig tree. Meaning, hey, you can see the signs, you can read certain things happening, and I agree with that. We, we don't need to be ignorant, but I'm not going to waste my time guessing. You know, there was a book that was really popular called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. Well, he didn't. Foolishness of people to try to guess things that Jesus said, I don't even know. For in the day, verse 37, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving into marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And this is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field and one will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding at a hand mill and one will be taken and the other will be left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know at what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would have not let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready because the Son of Man will come to you at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is faithful and a wise servant? whom the master has put in charge of the servants of his household to give them their food at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Basically, he's saying, hey, 
If you're a good worker and you're doing what you're supposed to be doing when your boss comes back, it's going to be good for you. In the same way, if you're doing the work that you're supposed to be doing when Jesus returns, it will be good for you. Truly, I tell you, he will be put in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that the servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. And the master of the servants will come on that day when he does not expect him and an hour that he is not aware of. And he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, the Apostle Peter, in his second letter, chapter 3 of his second letter, he says this, in the last days, he says, you need to know this, in the last days, there will be scoffers, mockers, critics, who say, where is the promise of Christ's coming? They'll, they'll say, hey, he's, he's been gone a long time, and, and it hasn't come back yet. And Jesus is saying that in, in these last days, there are people who have said, oh, the master's been away a long time. And they have just turned to their own way. And instead of doing the work that God has called us to do, they have become abusers, they have become drunkards, and they have a place among the hypocrites. And then he says that it will be like the days of Noah. And how does he describe the days of Noah? He says they will be living in total oblivion to the reality of the situation. You know, there's been a lot of speculation about what it was like with Noah building an ark. And certainly people who would have lived around Noah might have been fully aware of what was going on. But most of humanity, no idea. They just lived their lives in total oblivion obliviousness to the reality of their situation, that judgment was coming, not judgment that was undeserved, not judgment that was overreactive or was disproportionate to the situation. No, it was judgment that was righteous, that was more than fair, that was actually delayed, giving them time to repent. And they just carried on with their lives ignoring it, living it, marrying, being in marriage, drinking, eating. He's, it's not, a, this isn't a teaching about marriage. He's just saying, hey, you go, if you live in that kind of like cyclical world, right? You, there's the crops you plant, you harvest, somebody gets married. There was a certain time of year you got married. There was a certain time of year that you planted the fields. There were feasts. They just went on about their, their calendar year. Total oblivion to the reality of the situation and the coming judgment. And Jesus says, that is how it will be before his coming. So Peter says and tells us that in the last days, there are people that are going to say, where is his coming? And Jesus says there are going to be, it'll be just like the days of Noah, where people will just live in total oblivion to what's happening, what the reality is. The title of this message is Concerning the Rapture. I grew up, as I said, in a church and a group of churches that made a really, really big deal about the end times. And, you know, some of us at Faith on Hill grew up in a similar situation. Uh, some of us did. Uh, and so we were talking about it this last Sunday. 
Those of us who grew up in that type of church, uh, this sort of thing is almost like triggering for us because you were just beaten over the head with it as if it was the only thing that mattered. And then for others, there's like, wait, I've never heard anything about this. I, I, have, I heard about something to do with this, but I've never heard any kind of teaching on this. And others, the teaching was the exact opposite. And anything like what I'm going to talk about was like mocked, scoffed, whatever. What I have found, and I, this has just been only reinforced this last couple of weeks as I have been refreshing myself in this subject, is that most people do not have any personally thought through opinion on the last days, on Jesus' second coming, on the end times. And I'm not saying that you particularly, I'm not saying like, oh, you haven't thought this through. I'm saying in general, and I mean even the smartest, the most thoughtful people in the room. Most people, their opinion is based on whatever is popular in the day, in the moment, or whatever is the established position of their theological church tradition. Here's what I mean by that. If you were saved in a certain time, if you became a Christian in a certain era, that will likely determine what your views on the subject are. I spoke a little bit about this last week. But there are Bible commentators and scholars from a certain era who are fantastic Bible commentators and scholars who are totally useless on this subject. I went to some of my favorite commentators and they had nothing to say here because their generation and their era could have cared less about Bible prophecy. Uh, somebody at church on Sunday last week asked me about C.S. Lewis because the last book in the Narnia series is his sort of uh, take on, on the end times. And he, he takes concepts from biblical prophecy and puts it into Narnia. And I said, and this is true, I respect this about C.S. Lewis. I respect a lot of things about C.S. Lewis. Uh, I've actually been, I've been to C.S. Lewis's house. Um, I one time stood in his, uh, at his bomb shelter with a rock star. That's a true story. Um, I've been to his grave. I've, 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 I have been to where C.S. Lewis was. Okay. I've read a lot of his books. I appreciate him greatly. I think his books, I think his book on miracles in particular is incredibly underrated. Uh, I think his uh, science fiction books are largely overrated. Um, but I, I appreciate him. Out of his generation, he was one of the few who was interested in looking at anything to do with the end times. The church in England did not care. Some of the greatest preachers from basically like 1850 to 1950 in Europe and England in particular could care less and they are totally useless on this subject. Then from let's say like 1950 to like 2000, the most influential preachers in America, all firmly believed in the rapture of the church. That's the idea that the church will be removed, taken away before God's final seven-year time of judgment. That's called the tribulation. And then we'll return with Jesus at his second coming. Every major 
influential Bible teacher of that 50-year period, generally speaking, held that view. And if they didn't, they were quiet about it. Jack Hayford, Chuck Swindoll, Chuck Smith, then later on, Greg Laurie, Tim LaHaye, uh, uh, there's Daniel Jeremiah, who's a, a NFL expert, and I'm, I am totally getting, because there's, I believe it's uh, uh, David Jeremiah is the other one I'm thinking of, uh, and so on and so on and so on. There were preacher after preacher after preacher who held this view, right? John MacArthur, I could keep going. This was the view. And if you were listening to Bible teaching on the radio, uh, before we had podcasts, there were ministries that would mail cassette tapes and then later CDs all across the country. Like nobody knew about this, but Christians were doing podcasts before we had podcasts. Uh, you know, this was like totally under the radar to the rest of the country. But, but there were these ministries that would send out cassette tapes and then later CDs of these teaching ministries all over the place, sometimes for free. There was a ministry called Firefighters for Christ, and it was run by these like former firefighters in California, and they would send teaching tapes all over the place for free. And almost to a person, every one of these Bible teachers believed and taught this same view. And then about the 2000s, there was a shift as technology shifted, and the preachers and Bible teachers who became popular and influential as things shifted from tapes and CDs to podcasts and YouTube, these teachers and preachers had a different theology. They did not believe in the rapture of the church. They had differing views on whether there was a literal seven-year period of judgment called the tribulation. They all agreed that Jesus is coming back. Like almost everybody who's a Christian agrees that Jesus is literally coming back. John Piper, Tim Keller, Mark Driscoll, Matt Chandler, you can go on, uh, James McDonald. These were the popular people. Some of these guys have fallen into scandal, unfortunately. But these people, or like Rick Warren, they just stayed out of it. Like Rick Warren probably nominally believed in all of the stuff that the previous generation believed about the end times, but he just stayed out of it. He didn't have to toe the line anymore. My point is this. Most people tended to buy into one point of view or the other just based on who the popular preacher of the day was. And then I've met people who like firmly, firmly, firmly believe that the church will be raptured, removed before the seven year period of judgment, but they can't tell you why. And I know people who firmly, firmly believe the opposite, but they can't tell you why. And the only thing they can tell you is, well, Chuck Swindoll says this, well, John Piper or Tim Keller said that. They can't tell you anything other than this person said this or this person said that. As I was reading current modern Bible commentators, it was just down party lines. If you were, you know, reformed, you tended to, to say everything in this uh, passage, the second half of Matthew 24, is not talking about the rapture. If you weren't reformed, especially if you tended to be from that previous generation's theological camp, you say, Matthew 24, this second half is all about the rapture. And the, the central argument is about what the word taken means. When Jesus said, there'll be two men working in the field, one will be taken, the other will be left. There'll be two women that will be working at a grindstone, one will be taken, the other will be left. Who's taken? Who's left? Where are they going? 
And everybody just takes their position, not based on what the Bible's actually saying. They take their position based on what their pre-established position tells them to believe. That's dangerous. Because then we don't read the Bible for what it actually says. We read the Bible for what we want it to say. I really, really appreciate it. I've always enjoyed the writings of R.T. France. R.T. France uh, is a uh, Church of England, an Anglican Bible scholar and theologian. He and I are not on the same page theologically when it comes to the end times. He has a different point of view than I do. But what I appreciated was that he broke party lines and disagreed with most people in his group Not because he agreed with me, but because he said, you guys are making this say what you want it to say, and not what these words in Greek actually mean. That word taken doesn't mean what you want it to say. And I appreciated his honesty. What I'm saying is this, that there are people that will try to jam everything into what they want it to say. So here's how I approach the rapture, Bible prophecy, all of that in general. I generally believe this. I generally believe because of where I come from. I fully admit that part of this is where I come from. I grew up in that era of the preachers I was influenced by. I was influenced by Chuck Smith. I was influenced by Jack Hayford. I was influenced by Chuck Swindoll. I'm grateful that I had the chance to hear Jack Hayford preach live once. I had the chance to hear Chuck Smith preach live multiple times. I would love to have heard Chuck Swindoll preach live. Uh, I didn't get that chance, but I've heard him through podcasts and the radio preach many, many times. Um, I'm thankful for their, their influence on my life. That's where I come from. So I admit that. I I hold to that view. I believe that the church will be removed. There will be a time of judgment on the world, and then Jesus will return. But I also acknowledge that there is a lot about the end of the world that is not incredibly clear, that really good and honest and Jesus-loving people have legitimate disagreements about. And it's not always as clear as we say we want it to be. So what I do is say, I'm going to acknowledge where I come from, And then I'm going to back off and say, what is clear? And what is clear to me from the scripture here is that there is coming a time when God is going to finally say no more and he will move and he will act. And right now, as he is pausing, as he is giving the world time to repent, as he is delaying judgment for the sake of mercy, for the sake of grace, for the sake of love, as he is delaying that judgment, there are scoffers who are saying, where is his coming? Right now, there are people living in total oblivion, living their life. They're they're focusing on their career. They're focusing on their futures. They're, They're living, they're eating, drinking, getting married, getting divorced, getting remarried, just living life as if nothing will ever change. And Jesus is warning us about that. And then he shares. Now, personally, I do believe that what he's saying here is that there'll be all of a sudden one guy gone and one guy remaining and one gal gone and one gal remaining, because I do believe that the church will be removed. That's my personal belief. I I was talking to a friend of mine who has a different view on this. And he said, well, Adam, it says that as in the days of Noah, so it'll be just like the flood. You know, somebody will be taken in judgment and somebody else will be spared judgment. 
Well, I'm not sure how he sees that. I told him that. I said, you know, Noah and his family got into the ark. There wasn't people just sitting there waiting. But even if you say that, okay, let's go to Noah. In the story of Noah, there was a man named Enoch who lived contemporary with Noah. And Enoch walked with God. And he's one of the two people in the Bible that the Bible does not say that they died. In fact, the Bible says they just were with the Lord. The other being Elijah, the prophet. And Enoch, it just says he walked with God and then was no more. And it's incredibly different than how it describes everyone else's death in that genealogy in the book of Genesis. And Enoch is removed And as people have mapped out the genealogies and the timelines of the genealogies in in Genesis, it's as Enoch is removed, it's right around the time where Noah enters the ark. And so I see a picture of God removing before judgment. That's what I see. But I'm not going to fight anyone over it. It's just what I see. Jesus tells another story. Chapter 25, verse 1, it says, at that time, remember, this is the exact same teaching. He is still talking to them the same time he was talking last week. He's just talked to them about the time of Noah. And he says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. And the midnight cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived and the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came and said, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. This custom is very different than ours. You know, weddings are very different from place to place. If you've ever seen a wedding in like Greece, if you've ever seen a wedding in Africa, if you've ever seen a wedding in China, weddings are very different from place to place. In their time and place, what would happen is that the bridegroom would get his party together, his his groomsmen, and they would be hanging out The guys would be there getting ready. And you never knew. You kind of knew, hey, he's got his guys together. At any moment, he could leave where he's at and go to the bride's house and say, "Let's, let's do this. Let's get married. But Jesus tells a story where these young gals, and he says virgins, he he means these young unmarried girls, and they are there waiting to just celebrate. And and they're waiting. They've got their lamps because the sun is setting, and so it's going to be a nighttime wedding. And so they are just waiting to join the wedding party and to celebrate with everyone. And at midnight, the cry comes out, hey, it's time. But the five that didn't have the oil with them, Say, hey, we don't have any. We don't have any to go and and to join the party. And they say, we don't have enough for both. In Revelation chapter 19, the scripture says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. The Bible in multiple places describes our relationship between 
the church and Jesus as a, a marriage. And, and in Revelation 19, it says that the wedding between the church and the Lamb, between the church and Jesus, is happening at this final moment, the end of this age. Also, in Zechariah chapter 4, in the Hebrew scripture, and in Revelation chapter 1, lamp oil is, is used descriptively to speak of the power of God moving in people. Lamp oil is used throughout scripture for anointing, the oil of anointing to signify the work of the Spirit of God coming over someone. We see this in the Old Testament. People would be anointed for service. In the New Testament, people would be anointed with oil for healing. Lamp oil equals God's Spirit in our lives. The days of Noah is a warning to the world outside the church, the secular world. Hey, be aware. The people in Noah's day were not believers. Only Noah and his family were faithful to God. That was a warning to the outside world. Be aware. This thing will not go on forever. The story of the ten virgins is a warning to religious people, churchgoers. Be ready. When will you be ready? The five who had the extra lamp oil were ready. As they waited, as they waited, their lamps stayed full and the fuel did not run out. They were ready when the time came. The five who foolishly did not bring enough, they ran out. There are people, they're good people, quote unquote, they're moral people, supposedly. They do all the religious duty. They attend. They keep track of how often they attend. They keep track of how much they do. And then they look around and say, why doesn't this person do as much as I do? Why doesn't this person give as much as I give? Why doesn't this person as religious and rigorous as I am in my devotion? And yet there is no lamp oil within them. And when the cry comes out, they look around and say, I am burnt up because whatever strength that they had has been spent on keeping up this false charade, this false illusion of holiness. While the person that they were, go they were judging, who's just been hanging on by the power of God in their lives, and they, they're going on in with the wedding party. This is a warning to people who are inside the church walls. Be prepared. Be ready. Because you don't know when the cry will come and the bridegroom will come and they will enter in to the wedding supper and the celebration and you won't be prepared and you will knock at the door thinking, I am here, I'm here to celebrate, I'm ready, I'm part of team Jesus. And the response will be, I don't know you. Jesus tells another story in another part of the Gospels where, where there will be people who will come on the last days and they will say, Lord, didn't we do this for you and this for you and this for you and this for you? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I've never known you. They'll have the list of things that they have done to make themselves right before God. But on the inside, nothing has changed. They had no work from God. The lamp oil was not from God. Now, Jesus is warning his disciples. He's saying, I want you to know this. 
The people outside the church walls are going to live in total oblivion. They are going to think nothing will change. They are going to be fully surprised. I want you to also know there are going to be people on the inside of the church walls who are not ready. Here's the thing I do know. This is the one thing I want to argue about. Not with you necessarily, but when it comes to the the theology and the doctrine around the end times, and this is why I personally still believe in the rapture of the church, the idea that Jesus will remove the church before the final judgment is this. In Genesis chapter 18, Abraham is talking to God and he is pleading on behalf of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, surely you, speaking to God, surely you, God, wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why would you be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same? And God does not disagree with him. This is a principle in scripture that God separates the righteous from the wicked. You maybe have heard of the sheep and the goats. It's a uh, a parable that we're actually going to look at next week. That God separates in the final judgment the righteous from the wicked. That those who are his are not treated as those who are not his. And if the judgment of God, the wrath of God, is going to be poured out on a sinful and evil world, I do not believe that we will see or experience the judgment of God. There are Christians who do believe that. There are Christians who believe that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was not enough. And I reject that as fully and as wholeheartedly as I can. There are Christians, when when I pastored in England, there was a church down the road where the pastor began to teach that Uh, there was still some sort of judgment for Christians that before we entered into heaven, there was some sort of painful, and he thought it would be physically, horrifically painful experience that we would have to go through as a final punishment before we could enter heaven. Maybe you've heard of purgatory, the idea that some people still had some sins to atone for, and you go to purgatory, and then you're there for a while, and then you get out of purgatory, which is like mini hell, and then you get out of mini hell, and then you get to go to heaven. Those are false. They are anti-gospel. They are not biblical ideas. Jesus' death was once and for all. It paid for all sin. The Bible said that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The work of Jesus on the cross is sufficient for all who will believe. And that's something that I will Go to the wall, I will fight and fight and fight to stand firm on. Not because I'm looking to pick a fight with somebody over theology, but because it is so important, so central and core to the good news of Jesus that people know that our sins have been fully washed away, fully forgiven. We are fully saved. The church will not see the judgment of God. And if the wrath of God is coming, whether it's a literal seven-year period or it's something different. I'm not going to argue that with somebody else. I believe it's a literal seven-year period. I believe that because of Daniel chapter 9, but I don't care about arguing that. If there is coming a time where the wrath of God, the righteous anger, the righteous justice of God is coming for all of the human trafficking, all of the abuse, all of the rape, all of the war, all of the pollution, all of the lies, all of the injustice that this world 
has accrued. And that is coming against all who have not experienced the grace and mercy of Jesus that has been freely offered to them. The church will not experience that. Those who are true believers, and I don't mean people that come to church. That's the warning in the parable of the ten virgins. I mean those who are true believers will be removed. That's why I believe in the rapture. And if somebody says, I believe that concept, but I just believe there's some differences. There's a group called the pre-wrath rapture, and their theology is is the wrath of God doesn't happen until halfway through the seven-year tribulation period, and that's when we're removed. And that's fine. I mean, I don't agree with it, but at least I agree with them on that, and I'm not going to like make a big deal about it. My point is this. Jesus warns his followers, and he's warning us. People will go on living their lives as if nothing will ever change. And they will say, yeah, you know what? The master's been away a long time as if nothing's going to happen. And Jesus says, you watch out because you don't know when it's going to happen, but it will. There are people who are like, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to the wedding, but they are not ready. The only way to have that lamp oil, the only way to be ready to go in and celebrate and be part of the kingdom celebration is to have Jesus in your life. Church membership will not save you. Being baptized does not save you. Being having like confirmation at a church when you were 13 did not save you. Only true faith and repentance in Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection is what saves us. And this is an invitation to experience the fullness of salvation, to be saved from a world that is going mad and that has a justice and a judgment coming towards it. We don't know when, we don't know what day it is, but at some point that will happen. And the only way to be ready is to be in Jesus, is to have Jesus flowing in us, is to be in the kingdom of heaven and to have walked away from the madness of the kingdoms of this world. And that invitation is to all and any who would believe. Are you old? Are you young? Are you rich? Are you poor? Are you a woman? Are you a man? Do you you choose not to identify with whatever? That invitation is to all. Jesus is calling out to you. He knows your true name. He knows everything about you. He knows everything that you've done. He knows everything that's been done to you. And he is saying, come and let me fill you. Let me fill you with my true love. Let me show you my true purpose. Let me give you my true freedom and let me show you the full extent of the salvation that you can only dream of until you step into it. And if you have reached out to Jesus, let us know. Office at faithonhill.com is a great email to reach out. We'd love to hear from you. May the grace of God be with you. And no matter, you know, hey, what's going on with the rapture, whatever, that doesn't matter. What matters is that Jesus saves lives and that Jesus isn't leaving us alone and that Jesus isn't going to leave us to just keep spinning round and round and round on this, on this planet. He's coming back and he's going to set things right. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be blessed, that you would know the love of God, the peace of God, and the grace of God this week. God bless you.